you know, it, it sounds crazy, but I, I want to be part of building the future of the practice of law. I think that what we do is immensely valuable from a commercial context, so that gives me some satisfaction. But if you think about what law is, it's, it's critical infrastructure for society. And so much of our personal and our, you know, in our public life runs on this infrastructure that hasn't been upgraded in a long time. You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. How to introduce my next guest? Well, I'll let him introduce himself, of course, but Jason Barnwell is a super interesting guy. He's a software engineer by background, an attorney as well, and now he works in Microsoft's legal group, essentially helping to, uh, working to change the culture, to create a culture of systems first and innovation first, and is a really fascinating guy. I've done work with him, so he's a client, full disclosure. Um, but I think you'll see why I wanted to have him on this podcast. The The real world experience that he has thinking about what culture is, what innovation is, and how to create a culture of innovation is just really, really fascinating. Um, I really appreciate how not just how he's doing the work, but how reflective he is about the work he's doing. And we all benefit from that because you, dear listeners, are about to get a kind of a tour of Jason's brain as it works to solve these big, thorny, you know, as I like to call them, impossible problems in this big, well-resourced corporate context where they're having to solve problems in a fundamentally new way at scale to support a business that is changing dramatically. And and for me, Jason's story is kind of, I mean, I think of his story and I think of the work that I'm doing now almost as the sequel to Meltdown. Meltdown talks about complexity. It talks about the kind of changes you need in an organization to be able to manage complexity. And I say the sequel because what what Jason and I talk about is how to make those changes, is how to shift things. And that's a lot of what the work I'm doing nowadays is. So I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a very interesting and engaging conversation. Jason is also just a good person. So it's just nice to talk to him. And uh, I really appreciated his time today and the insights he shares with us. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Jason Barnwell. My name is Jason Barnwell. I'm an assistant general counsel at Microsoft, and I work on our modern CELA program. CELA is an acronym that stands for Corporate, External, and Legal Affairs. And it is a multidisciplinary organization within Microsoft that helps us figure out how we can take the business forward, thinking about legal issues, policy issues, uh, outreach, uh, working with external parties. And it's a really, really fun and interesting organization because 
we end up seeing a lot of the new, the different, the weird. Um, and as everybody knows, uh, the world's getting faster, but it's also getting more complex. And by that, we mean that the constraints that impinge upon our business are starting to layer and they're starting to collide and they're starting to become incompatible. And so that makes the work that we do uh, more interesting. And my focus is how can we change how we do that work to take advantage of what technology can offer us, to actually think about what does transformation within that technology empowered and enabled lens really mean. And it is a combination of culture and it's also a combination of really architecting how we make technical solutions. And it's probably one of the most fun jobs in the company. And I'm really lucky that, uh, that I get to do it. So yeah, that's what I do. Awesome. Um, and we know each other because well, we met each other socially, but then we know each other because you actually hired me to work with your team as you kind of sort of started started in the, the early stages of this effort of creating this kind of culture of innovation within SELA. Yes, we paid you money to help us solve some of our hardest problems. Which is, I, that's a great... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I want that on a on a t-shirt. Uh, that's like a great a great endorsement. And and it was really fun work and it was also it's it's hard work and it was like it was heartfelt work and it it's really um influenced my thinking about what that work looks like and and what one needs to do to change culture and transform culture. And, and I, I, I gave you a little preview of this, but um, I told my previous guests kind of who you were and a little bit about your role. And he was, he is the CEO of um, town and country markets uh, and just an incredible, uh, very interesting guy, humble, very humble leader, an organization that is deep into the idea of valuing its people and kind of, experimentation and innovation and improvement. And um, one thing he was interested in is just what's your perspective on, you know, we all use this word culture, but what is culture? And and how do you, how do you think about that? That is a great question. And it is a word that we throw around. You know, it's always interesting to see like people throw around the term strategy and culture and, and all these words. And I do think it's interesting to ask people what they mean. So for me, Culture means the, 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 basically the, the normative way that people behave within a system. So it is the, often the unwritten set of defaults that inform how people will do things in the absence of a bunch of written rules. So to the extent that you've got you know, documented policies, that's not really culture, right? Those are the rules that have been prescribed and published out that should, should will, uh, nominally govern people's behavior. But the culture is really, you know, it's mostly made up of the stuff that's not written and that is transmitted in the most human way possible, which is really tribally, right? So when you join an organization, immediately the culture starts getting transmitted to you in how people engage with each other. And as humans, we're, we're often very good at picking that up and mimicking it. And it is so interesting to me how we show up and we don't really think about how there's this de facto indoctrination that happens just when you show up. 
And so it's funny to like, you know, people talking like, so what's your, what's the onboarding process? It's like, well, a lot of it is, is literally, you know, the, the first interactions that you have with the people that set the tone for, is this a hierarchical place? Or, you know, is this a place where people speak up or what have you? And so when you're thinking about how you're going to shape behavior at, at scale, you're often talking about culture and incentives. Those are, you know, at a very simple level, two of the things that you're probably going to try to influence to shape that behavior at scale. And you really wanna be very intentional about how you build culture if you are trying to go from a state to another state. And it is like many other things, if you're not taking active steps to change the culture, then you're not. You're probably not going to get to where you want to go. What you will likely, almost certainly, do is you will self self perpetuate what already is, and you'll just get more of what you already got. Well, and and part of this um, goes back to this idea of the water. It's hard to see the water that you swim in. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, classic podcast fashion, holding up a glass of water so, so we all know that this resonates with him. <laughs> um, but it's it's hard to know the water that you swim in. And, it, and, and there is the other thing that I think about is culture is something that is adaptive. In other words, the culture of an organization, the culture of a team kind of evolved to serve, like to serve some specific purpose. And it's, you know, when I say adaptive, I mean, it's not necessarily the, the, the purpose that you want it to serve, but there is some underlying commitment to, um, you know, not speak up, right? It's like, well, we don't challenge each other's ideas. Like there is a, a, a you, would, you would not want to be in a culture that always challenged everyone's ideas. And so I, I think about it as kind of, and this comes from my coaching work and my organization, like my team coaching work, my organizational development work. It's like, how do you grow the range of a culture so they can be both, you know, both procedural and and kind of um, uh, what would be the the op- like um, spontaneous? How, like how how can you how can you sort of help people see where they are so that they can make the decisions they want to make about how to get how to grow their range? I think that's exactly right. And so when you say adaptive, I think that's the perfect word because if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, I think you're you're highlighting exactly how it works. Certain people show up at a at a certain time and there is a context in which they operate. And if they are successful, then they will remain and they may even thrive and they may be even be they may be promoted and so forth and so on. And so those people end up being emblematic for the culture that defines success in the organization. And the people who come behind them will see these people and look at their traits and behaviors when the person who shows up arrives. So they weren't there for when necessarily that person was, was growing or coming up or, or you know, that, that, that time zero, they show up at time you know, zero plus N, right? And then what's interesting is because this is what humans do, we will effectively pattern match, right? We will mimic the behaviors that we see in the exemplars and the archetypes that are deemed successful and wherever it is that we show up. And that is how we transmit a whole lot of culture, right? The people who are the, the, the ones who are deemed as successful and the paragons for what we should be, 
that those are the ones who who transmit uh, what is regarded as good, regardless of what the posters on the wall say or what's in the handbook or all these other things. So, and I think this is very much baked into how humans are. Yes. Well, and and there's I think there's even I mean there's two other things to highlight that that I'll put out there. I mean, one is, and I know you think about this a lot. Um, one is the kind of training and education process, not not just within the organization, but before the organization. So you're uh, you're an engineer at heart, and you're an attorney, and the process of, I mean, the whole system of not just legal education, but the work of attorneys in this context creates a very specific set of behaviors that are rewarded. But then there's also, and this is where, you know, when we think about things like, like privilege and, and, you know, systemic discrimination and bias, there is also the, the hiring process, which is not, does not inject noise into the system. I mean, it can, but it, it also, it injects a lot of conformity into the system because the people that are in the system are responsible for hiring new people to come into the system. And so there's an element of that too, which, you know, you have the selection effect and also who decides to apply to a place too. So you've got that kind of going all, all different ways. That's true. And that is especially, I'd say, rigid for legal practitioners. So going back, so I, I, I agree. So if you think about how we are selected for, uh, trained, recognized, rewarded, and promoted, it, is, it bakes in a very specific worldview, one that tends to be really risk averse. And by risk, you know, again, like we, we throw these words around and what is what does risk actually mean? Well, for me, when I think risk, I think unknown outcomes, right? So if, and if, if an action is going to be taken and there's a set of outcomes, some of which are known and some of which are unknown, that is one dimension of, of risk. And I'm not going to go into the, the full Rumsfeldian, but, and then for the things that you do know, like what's the likelihood of, of these things happening? And when you think about legal professionals, we are trained to look at, uh, to basically research precedence. And so it is very much look backwards and then try to build uh, models that seek to analyze risk. So turn, turn, turn as much as you can the, the unknowns into knowns or at least predictable outcomes to ultimately solve for an optimization problem. But what's interesting about that is it does not combine what I think is a very natural uh, complement to that, which is experimentation. And so if you think, of, if you look at uh, the sciences and engineering, that takes a very different view. Uh, so if, if legal work starts you off focusing on critical thinking, which is, you know, a lot of deconstruction and looking at what happened and trying to piece it apart, this, the sciences, they, they tend to come at it from a very different view, which is you know, well, are, is there a pattern here? And if, if we need additional information, could we run an experiment rather than can we go look in a book and see what happened? Now I'm being a bit hyperbolic there, but uh, a lot of my work is really to try to get legal professionals to embrace more of the pattern thinking and the experimentation that comes from uh, the sciences. Uh, and when we bring those things together, you get you get strong compliments because you get the the strength of the analytical uh, thinking that that comes from 
the, the legal uh, profession and, and training, but it also gives you more of the adaptation capability that comes from the, the sciences. And so the future of our practice, kind of give it away, is really figuring out how to merge those two things together. Yeah, how to grow the range, right? How to, how to be able to capture both of those things. I, I guess kind of tell me the so what, like why, why, you know, some of the people listening are probably attorneys. Some of the people are probably at big companies, but like, like this, I, I think that you think this, and I know I think this, like this work, Matt, like this isn't just a question of corporate. This isn't a corporate question. Like this is a question that actually affects us in, in different ways. Like, why does this matter? Specifically solving for the future state of the practice? Yeah, is, is, for the practice of law, yeah. Right. Well, there, there's a couple reasons, and let's see if we can hit a few different levels. So it, just from a why do I have this job and, and why should Microsoft fund this effectively an ex, the experiment that, that I am and that I'm trying to run, we have conviction that we need effectively – new capabilities and new capacity to meet the needs of the enterprise. And we will not be able to do that in the conventional ways that we would do that. So specifically, well, there's more work, so I should go hire more humans and throw them at the problems. And the reason that's probably not going to work for us are a fewfold. One, as you start mixing more humans into work, the coordination and uh, and communication tax increases, right? I mean, networks are very powerful, but there's also a cost to traversing information through networks. And as you just keep throwing more people in, that gets harder and harder. But the other practical constraint we're starting to see is the businesses that we serve are transforming themselves. And so if you look at the interface, the volume and pace of work is accelerating and not in a linear fashion. And so the problem is, even if you did decide, well, I'm going to just start throwing more and more humans at the problem, the rate at which you will be able to take on new work is still below the growth line for the, you know, where things are coming in. So we really don't have a choice because if we project out where things are going, we literally, we will not have enough wakeful human time to do all the work that we'd want to do. And again, the cost of actually harnessing all of that time, all of that potential and not have it be a, a chaotic mess gets really, really hard. And so we're, we're really, we just kind of don't have a choice. Like we have to do this. And the thing is, this is actually potentially a really good thing for legal professionals because the jobs that we can create have the potential to be magical. So the tools, the information, the insights that ultimately we will be able to bring to how they do their work is going to allow people to do things that are probably unimagined a couple decades ago. And that's really exciting. But to get there, we have to, we have to get people comfortable changing how they practice and thinking about, okay, if I'm going to, to if I'm going to solve a problem, it may not just be let me go research what somebody else did in these exact same circumstances because those circumstances never existed, right? We are looking forward out of the the windscreen. We're not looking right. in the rearview mirror. And so, well, you know, if we're in a situation where <laughs> this has never existed before, then we start getting into 
places where we you have to run experiments and you have to start creating models from first principles that you know do your best to try to figure out how the how a system will respond and then you put some signal in and see what happens so now i'm going kind of you know a, a little bit uh sideways from your initial question but that is how ultimately we are going to solve the business problems that are are impinging on microsoft's business but to your other aspect of like why that's the so what this is the same pattern that's going to apply societally, right? So if you're thinking about this as a citizen, you live in a system that, you know, hopefully a system that has very good rule of law that creates ideally a safer and well-regulated world that allows you to, to, to thrive. But as we start having new technologies, new, <laughs> you know, secular challenges like, hey, the planet's temperature is increasing and all of the primary and second order impacts of that, we're not going to be able to solve our problems with the old techniques. And we're not gonna be able to come up with approaches that give society effectively the guidance that it needs to figure out how we're gonna maximize utility for, for a global maximum. And so ultimately that takes us down the, the road of thinking about the same approaches and the same thought processes and frameworks are going to need to be applied to, you know, the what are effectively the, the problems that we all uh, exist in in public, too. Yeah, and, and I think that's, you know, I mean, that's actually we're now looping back to how I got into this business in some sense, this business of thinking about complexity, because really the three, I mean, the three kind of like landmark things that I can point to that that took me out of finance and shit and just kind of blew out my focus to thinking about this stuff. It was the financial crisis, which was very much a failure of the interface between different companies and each other and the interface between regulators and the industry on the one hand, and, and even just the kind of day-to-day -day of trading before that was something something I, 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 I saw that in. Uh, plane crashes, which very much has this same story of you kind of got this, this technological complexity and, and you can't, you know, safety is not a linear process. So you can't just tell people to try harder. You've got to, tr you've got to try different things. And, and the regulators were both part of the problem and then ultimately part of the solution there. Uh, and then Deepwater Horizon, which um, you know the 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 explosion, the the oil rig explosion, which had many many different facets to it, but one was a company's inability to see and manage its risk, and that is um, not different than the kind of what we're talking about in some ways. It's like the oper the complexity of the operations increased beyond their ability to not provide legal services for them although possibly that as well but but to provide kind of a a what do I want to say an effective approach to kind of an an effective culture of risk taking and there were regulatory issues at that interface too so there's there's also a fundamental constraint that devolves from what you're talking about, which is human cognition. So one of the things that we want to believe is that we can fit the, like, the models that are necessary to manage these really massive kind of systems in our heads. And I don't know that we can. 
I think it starts to get yes. a little bit too hard. And so at that point, you need, you need to start doing a, a few different things, right? One, you have to come up with frameworks that give you a way to at least spend more of your time paying attention to the highest order effects that you can kind of load up into your mind. And then you also need to start thinking about like, okay, so what, what are like, can I model this? Can I get data? It, it, but this all comes down ultimately to the constraint that we have on human cognition, which is both not just our ability to put big complicated things in our heads, but also the amount of wakeful time that we have to, to kind of puzzle through them and work on them. And so one of the biggest challenges that, so, so that's at the, the big side, but the other thing that's really painfully ironic is, so if our greatest scarcity is human attention, the other thing we do is we throw it away constantly on menial things. Yes. Um, and that, that is ultimately what I want to solve for that I hope will give people a better experience uh, at work. If you, if, you know, for people who want to do knowledge work, because I can, I suspect that most of the people, for example, who went to law school, they showed up to law school wanting to do the most interesting things, wanting to, you know, go find the novel issues and to explore the horizon. I don't know that they wanted to do, you know, duplicated effort that a machine could do, which is effectively glorified find and replace. Maybe they did, but I suspect most of them did not. And so if we, if we think about the thoughtful application of the, really the, the tools and techniques that are available, it is, and I, this is where I think it's really important. And this is where you are really good at giving people a clarifying view that technology is wonderful, but like you also need the frameworks, the thinking frameworks that help you effectively take the problems and break them into pieces that you can then put into the right solving mechanisms and then reassemble so that you can make a good decision. And when I, when I read your book and when you, know, when, you, when you counsel our team, a lot of what you're often trying to walk us towards is think about how you're going to deconstruct this to put it into the, the tools that you do have, whether it's your minds or whether it's machines or what have you. And ultimately take that approach so that you can come up with a better answer that hopefully gets you better outcomes. I, I think another way, maybe a slightly different way of saying that is, and I don't know if this is the same thing, so you let me know or, or bridge the gap. And this is something I talk a lot about with people is like, you are, you are actually not trying to solve a technology problem. You are trying to solve a socio-technical problem. And technology happens to be the tool that you're using to solve it. But you could come up with the perfect technological solution and if you didn't involve people, well, first of all, if you didn't involve people along the way, it's not actually going to be the perfect technology solution. You might think it is from your kind of your, you know, your four walls, but but it it won't be. And so I think that the thing that to me is is interesting about discussions like this is how how much the you know, even if what you're trying to do is get technology in to scale things so that people don't have to do them, the most important part of that process is the people. That is exactly right. And every awful piece of software that anybody has ever interacted with was somebody's perfect solution. So I think we can look around all over the place and <laughs> see that indeed, <laughs> one beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, and, and 
many of the things that we interact with on a, on a day-to-day basis highlight the, the disutility that comes from, from trying to put something that is hopefully a value into people's space so that they can do something useful, but getting it wrong. And so I would say that I have, and I continue to do this repeatedly, where because of my biases and, and how I think the world works, I fail all the time. I create solutions that I'm like, well, do we even need to document this? Because I mean, it's just so intuitively obvious. And of course, no, that means that that's, that's how you know it's going to be a disaster. Whenever, right. you, by the way, any anytime anybody says intuitively obvious, like, okay, something's going to go horribly wrong. So I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things that's funny is in our work, people focus very heavily on the, oh, you're building solutions and you're doing all these things that have this technical bent. And that is absolutely true. But the most important thing that we are doing is we are creating effectively a a circumstances where people are predisposed to think that this can help them. And they're willing to engage in how we build these solutions for them. So they actually create that utility. And you're, you're spot on that a lot of the, the hardest work is really trying to understand what is somebody's actual job to be done? Like, so what is the, the problem that they are trying to solve as they perceive it? Because by the way, we're often solving for uh, different stakeholders problems simultaneously, right? So right. There's, there's a nominal customer who might be the end user. But actually, there's there's often a, a bigger graph of other stakeholders we're trying to serve simultaneously. And how can we create the experience so that people are actually attracted to it and want to engage with it? Because it, like humans are really good at non-compliance for things that don't make sense to them. And something can not make sense for a couple of reasons. One reason it can make not make sense is well, this is just broken and it, it has no value. But another reason that something cannot make sense is I don't really understand this. And it's not because people are not smart or they're not. It's literally just like it has not been explained to me how this thing that you're asking me to do ultimately creates value that benefits me or creates value in a larger sense. Right. And so a lot of what we are doing in our work is we're trying to close that divide and we're trying to give people more facility to engage with what we're building so, and by that, I mean, both let them see what it is and, and the value of it, but also ideally giving them the opportunity to shape the construction so that it is more fit for purpose. Right. And this is the thing, and and this is the thing, and we were just talking as, as we got on before we started recording this, you know, the thing that I've been thinking a lot about is how do I better systematize the kind of work that I did with you and your team, the kind of work that I've done with um, you know, big companies who are going after these kind of, you know, thorny culture change, innovation problems. And the way I've started thinking about it is, I, I, it's cheeky, but I call them impossible problems. They're problems where you don't actually know the answer. You have a vision, but you don't know the answer. So you've got to engage people, not only in defining the answer, but also defining the problem as they see it. Um, you don't control the people. So like, even if they're in your reporting line, you know, the kind of, the influence, um, there's an exponential drop-off for like uh, getting people to adopt novel solutions. So you don't control the people. 
and you don't control the organizational context. You don't control the, you know, the technology systems, the incentives, the kind of who, you know, the org structure, who reports to whom, um, the regulatory background, you know, the, the, the kind of practices outside of your organization. And, and I think one of the things that, that I knew that I wanted to ask you about, because I, I, you know, Microsoft is a, it's a huge organization, right? I mean, it is a, and, and even, you know, I mean, even CELA within Microsoft is bigger than many big companies, right? I mean, it's just the, the scale that you guys operate at is, is big. So I, I, the thing I want to ask is like, how, I mean, really what you're trying to do is you are trying to like, well, I don't know if you would describe it this way, but, but how are you like trying to sort of seed these practices so that they take root? And how are you like, how do you think about working skillfully with the constraints that you have to operate within, not because they're bad constraints, but, but, but they're adaptive constraints, but they're adaptive to the previous generation of the problem, not to the generation you're solving. So how, how do you think about that? So first I will agree that impossible problems is probably a good moniker because to solve for what we're solving for, it's impossible if you think that is a technical problem that you can solve by yourself. Like that, like it's it's an adaptive problem that operates in a system. And if you come at it with the, well, if I find the smartest single person and I let them, you know, do whatever they want, the pro if, they, if you think that that right. creates a tractable, tractable problem, then you're, you will fail. Uh, <laughs> and you'll probably spend a lot of money in the failure and hopefully at least you learn something from the failure. But if you're coming at it with that mindset, there's also a high risk that you're not even going to get the, the learning you need out of the failure. Totally. I agree. So when we apply the, this kind of thinking to how do we, if we, if we are in a system that was, has been evolving over some period of time and we need to get our people to think differently about how they do their work, about how they are going to solve the problems. Like if it, this all sounds very basic and simple, but what we're trying to do is, and there's a few different tricks that we use, but, but mostly it comes down to giving people a story that wraps the facts of the current circumstances in a narrative that they can perceive and that they can feel so that it has the, the emotional content for them that helps them orient where they are in our shared journey to where we're going. Now, that sounds probably super squishy and touchy-feely, but most of the work that we do to, to actually drive change is around that central hypothesis. So it is really thinking about how do we build up new archetypes that show people like, oh, for where we want to go and how we're going to get there, these are the traits and behaviors that are embodied in people who we're now going to effectively turn into heroes. And we tell stories on that. And we actually, so as you know, we, we hired a storyteller because we thought that the process of systematically identifying the future state uh, encapsulated kind of stories, vignettes, whatever you want to call them, and transmitting those to the organization were going to be the most effective way to actually affect the change. 
And you know, we could we could call it other more conventional uh, uh, things in corpse speak, like we could call it comms and, and other things. But at the root of it, it really is stories where you've got a hero and some drama and there's a problem and they struggle and then they get to the other side of it. And, and the thing is, if you have these mo- these elements, like if you have detention and you have kind of the, the personal aspect, then what happens is people can hang on to it and then they can actually apply it to themselves. One of the things that we've learned the hard way is without, without narrative, data just kind of bounces off people. Information doesn't actually percolate through. And so the temptation is to think that, oh, well, the way that I will drive this change is I will just show people a bunch of information that makes it self-evident that if you want to get to the other side of this, you will need to adapt. And it turns out that that's not really how most of us are wired. Some people are, but for the, for the most part, you know, people will, will reject that unless it is encapsulated in something that makes it more relatable for them. And that makes it more easy for them to apply because it fits within whatever their tribal context is. So the, the short answer to your question is, we try to find really good stories that show success leading to the future state. And then we try to give people ways to follow in the footprints that are created by the, the people who are in those stories. And ultimately we hope that that brings enough people along so that the, the, the median culture gets to the, the place where we need it to be. And then the, the momentum of the system starts to carry things forward. And I want to say too, because this is something that, that I think a lot, I think a lot about, there is also this kind of, this fantasy that change needs to have, and I'm not saying you hold this, but, but you might, um, a lot of us do like this fantasy that change needs to get like a hundred percent participation, like a hundred percent uptake. You're shaking your head. Yeah. And and what I think is interesting is, you know, even if you get pockets of the organization to do things better, I mean, first of all, you're going to capture just the, the kind of the bottom line value that their improvement shows. And then you get the stories from that too. And you see how they did it. And not only that, you start to get, you know, a little bit of law, like you tap into FOMO, which I think of as just like loss aversion. Like you start to, people are start to look around and they say, you know, gosh, if we, and I know you talked about this in, in our very early conversations as we started to work on this. I know this has been a part of your strategy. It's like, Hey, we are going to be left behind if we don't do this. So we call what you're talking about kind of the velvet rope paradigm, right? And as much as people, you know, if, you, if you've ever been to some type of place where there's a rope and the cool people are getting to the other side of the rope, it's just so human to be like, I would like to get to the other side of the rope. And so a certain amount of what we do is we, <laughs> we show people the rope that has some cool stuff going on the other side of it. And then we, we welcome people to come to the other side of the rope and we show people the, the path on how to get there to your, to your question, or well, actually to your point, you, I do not believe that you need, you don't even need most people to embrace the change. If you can get the right 30% of people in an organization to embrace the change and actually project out their behavior, you can bring along most of the rest of the organization. And so if, if success requires 
getting effectively manually flipping the bit on everyone that takes forever. And that, that kind of, you know, trench warfare approach is, 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 is a slog. Well, and they flip back too, right? The bits flip back. Like that's the, that's absolutely. Um, And you get all kinds of, you know, strange interactions that happen among your, your, your qubits. So the, couldn't, couldn't help myself. So the, the thing that we try to be thoughtful about is who has influence, right? Because if you can get the right people who are both manifesting the future state, but also the way that they behave causes other people to intrinsically think like, oh, this is what good looks like. And I would like to emulate this person because they are somebody who is well-regarded and I would like to you know, be well-regarded as well. If, if you're thoughtful and strategic about who you invest in, then you can make a lot more progress more quickly and at far less cost. I guess one thing I am curious about with with you is, and, and this is actually a question that, that Bill Weimer helped me formulate, um, but it's what, like, let's say it's two years from now or, or a year from now or five years from now, whatever the right time frame is, and you feel like you've been really successful at this, like, what are the behaviors that you are seeing that let you know that you are part of an innovative culture? So one of the things that we have started to see that is really heartening is we are seeing what what is effectively organic growth and demand for our services. So when our program first stood up, um, we were not known. And people didn't really know how we would help and what we could do to help them. So we were what I would call hunting and gathering. So we literally were going around and looking for problems to solve and basically going to people and saying like, could, can we please help you? Like, it seems like you've got this interesting problem. And they're like, eh, maybe. And a few months ago, we flipped over to what I would call like, we, we, where we, we used to be hunters and gatherers. We now seem to be in a, a, an agrarian society wherein we are farming and there's kind of a harvest and you know, like it's, it's much more sustainable. And actually one of our, our real challenges is we don't have enough capacity to service all the demand uh, that we have, mm. which is a fabulous, fabulous problem. And so what real success is going to look like and one that creates a more sustainable uh, version for us is when people in our organization see the benefit of what we do and how we do it in ways that it causes them to say, I need to drive my investment to support this kind of action and behavior because it's just smarter for my business. Because right, if you if you look at what our program is, really we're, we're a catalyst, right? What right. we do is we lower the activation energy for getting the, the effectively the, the chemical reactions that we want because we think they produce the outcomes that support the business. And ideally what happens at some point in, in hopefully the not too distant future is maybe we're not necessary. The people who are in our organization, they gain enough facility with kind of like what we're doing, how we do it and why we do it that they start taking it upon themselves to say like, oh, I can do a certain amount of self-service on this. Um, so that would be success. And I think that we have a good chance of getting there in large part because people are starting to realize that if they're going to be successful in how they do the work, they're not going to be able to 
just do things as they always have. And as they're starting to really realize that and they're more open to, well, how could I adapt? How could I change how I do this work? They're starting to change their skill set and their perspectives. And if we can get people to have the right perspective and the right skill set so they can self-serve on this, then it becomes a fully sustainable, self-sustaining enterprise. And our potential, like it, it, it goes to a crazy place. Right. And it's almost like the transition. I mean, in, in a sense, you right now, you and your team, you're operating at linear scale, right? You can you can solve problems that give you like nonlinear benefits that give you 10x, 100x, 1000x, but but your team is still operating at linear scale. And what you're sort of talking about is the organization getting to a point where it is in this, in the kind of around the innovation question, self-organized enough that, you know, maybe you will still kind of wander around and, and nudge people and facilitate particular kind of challenges, but but it's not like your team needs to grow to a hundred act, you know, a hundred times as big to, to have a hundred times the impact is kind of what I hear you saying. That's right. So the highest form of what we do, if, if you'll excuse the metaphor is teaching people how to fish, right? So at linear approach, we catch fish for people like here's a fish, enjoy your fish. And to your, to your point, that doesn't get you, the kind of exponential value growth that we need. It really is teaching people to fish, but also how to fish collectively, right? Right. Because it's one thing to go fish on your own, but if you want to see something, you know, really impressive, watch uh, uh, fish that are predatory work in coordination with each other and you see amazing outcomes. And maybe that's not the right metaphor, but it's, it really is thinking about the combinatorial power of what happens if we get people thinking about these capabilities. And just as importantly, we start getting them thinking about solving problems, not solely within their own domain, but how they're going to partner with people who are adjacent to them and come up with solutions that look across their subject matter expertise. Because going back to where we started, the challenges that are emerging are not single domain. They end up being these intersecting, you know, kind of Venn diagrams of all kinds of stuff. And so the technical aspect of that is too hard for a single subject matter expert to solve for. And that is ultimately why you need partnerships across people who see the problems coming from different domains, because if they can work collectively to effectively unpack the problem and break it into the pieces, then it starts to slowly turn into tractable technical problems, but you ultimately have to combine those in a smart way to create a solution that actually solves what is <laughs> the complex kind of overlay of things. Yes. And I, I think this is an interesting, it's such an interesting area. And because the shift you're talking about is actually already happening between organizations. And and you and I are working on this legal API thing together, which is really like kind of interesting and explore. It almost feels like experimental art in some ways. It's like a, an interesting project. Um, but I was talking with somebody the other day who, you know, at a major financial institution, working with other major institutions, major technology companies, and they stood up an entire new product that was essentially mediated through APIs. Um, you know, they had an API connecting to a technology provider, API connecting to a backend processor. And I mean, it, it was, 
they did this process kind of exponentially faster and with exponentially fewer resources than they would have done in the past. And it gave them a lot more ability to also make some very informed decisions about the way that they, like how they thought about resiliency and, and what was important to them in this process. And I just, I think that aspect of this is kind of, is is really fascinating as well. Just that there's this, there's this element where, you know, the thing that's happening in the business is mirroring the bigger, like mirroring what's happening in the world at large. I think that's right. And one of the practical things that happens when you start thinking about how am I going to solve a problem that goes across different, let's just call it systems at interfaces is it forces you to be more disciplined about solve, like really reducing things to patterns and solving the technical problems that you can solve. So at the very least, you're starting to be opportunistic about breaking things into, into pieces and set, you know putting them in the what is effectively the least cost solving resource for that issue. So now if I, if I have to be thoughtful about thinking about, okay, if I'm going to transact this piece of information and get a useful uh, uh, you know, value add coming back across the other side, I have to start doing some things. Right. Like I have to explain like, oh, this is the payload of what I'm giving you. And these are the features of it. And by the way, this is what I would like to get back from you. And it may be that you have control over the actual processing that happens on the other side of the API or maybe not. But just thinking about like just going through that exercise of decomposing kind of like what it is you're handing back and forth and thinking about how you would piece it back together and thinking about how you can augment it with other complementary systems like that, like that's what humans do all the time. That is, that is what collaboration looks like. But when you think about that as a repeatable process and you bake out the, the patterns as, as much as you can, you start to be able to augment the human capacity to transact that information and to basically take it on your brain. And now you start getting aggregates, you start being able to do things asynchronously. There's just all these benefits that come from bringing together the creativity of, of you know, and, and the ability that humans have to work in ambiguity with the structured side that allows you to basically take the more technical challenges and put those into a substrate that can process those really efficiently. Um, and that's that like, that's going to be the future state. That's where it's going. Um, that's awesome. That's a great way to put it. And, and why, I mean, just on a personal level, like why are you, why is, why are you passionate about this? Like, how did you, like, why are you, I mean, because you're not just like working on this, like you're creating this to work on in essence. Like what, what, what's your, what's your personal um, motivation? Why, why do you like this? You know, it, this sounds crazy, but I, I want to be part of building the future of the practice of law. I think that what we do is immensely valuable from a commercial context. So that gives me some satisfaction. But if you think about what law is, it's, it's critical infrastructure for society. And so much of our personal and our, you know, in our public life runs on this infrastructure that hasn't been upgraded in a long time. And it just doesn't work that well because it really was, the, you know, it was built so long ago. And if you think about just the interactions that people have in, on a day-to-day -day basis with the world, there were, honestly, there were fewer of them. And so if you, if you just kind of take a step back and say, what, 
might the world look like if we had better infrastructure that made it easier for us to intermediate our our interactions in a in a world that really supported our success by giving us you know all the supports we'd want in a civil society i think there's like crazy utility that comes from that right and i'm not saying like this is the one key thing that gets us to the star trek future i think you know there's other <laughs> investments and things we need to right. solve for but if we don't get this right we will basically be bumping against each other so much over the next decades that we won't get to that future fast enough and so for me it's it's not just an intellectually stimulating enterprise that we're going after it is something that if we if we get this right and we figure out how to do it yes there will absolutely be lots and lots and lots of uh, commercial utility that comes from it but the enduring thing that we will probably give society is a society that can actually function more effectively in the realm of the challenges that are to come. Yeah. Uh, well, Jason, thank you. I always like talking with you and I really appreciate your willingness to, to, to jump on here with me and, and chat. This has been an absolute delight. I uh, enjoy our nerd out sessions. Uh, you make my brain hurt, which is uh, when I know things are, are going in the right direction. Uh, awesome. I hope I also help it heal too, too in some ways <laughs> my my goal isn't just to, to not 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 to provide uh pain <laughs> um so i i'm i'm experimenting with this thing as i mentioned to you where i'm kind of asking a guest if they have questions for an upcoming guest and so i'm talking with a woman in a couple of weeks her name's diane chadwick jones and she was at um, BP for three decades or something like that. And um, after Deepwater, she was given the role of, I think her title was, um, she was the director of leadership and culture. And she was looking at how do you create a safety culture in this organization that just had this obviously devastating accident. Um, and I'm I'm curious what, what what might you want to know from her? How do you know when your culture's broken? Yeah, say more about that. Well, so one of the challenges of being a leader, especially one who is maybe homegrown, is things seem normal <laughs> because you might have grown up and you might have been there as things were changing. And so I think one of the challenges... Uh, that we have is how do you capture enough objectivity on things on the, on the, the current system when you are operating in the current system and you might even be benefiting from and thriving in the current system. And so if that's the, the case, how do you step out of that? And how do you perceive like, oh, not only is this broken, but this is the direction of travel in which we need to go to make this better. Because I think that's, that's not a trivial problem. Yeah. Right. And it, and it looks, it, the, the tricky thing too, is that it almost looks like a trivial problem when you're looking back from some big public catastrophic event. But, but most days, things go pretty well. Like things go good enough on most days. 
That is absolutely right. And so how do you observe the precursors? Like how, how do you not get to the point where there is something that is a catastrophic failure? Are there any you know, early warnings that, hey, our culture is, is, is not suited for the problems that we need to solve and for the capabilities that we need to have as an organization? And are there any, any things to look out for that would <laughs> help somebody who is probably on the inside and probably feels very comfortable in the current culture to think, hmm, maybe I should go ask some more questions. That's great. You know, it just strikes me as you say that, that the, the other aspect of what you're describing is, um, is the question around diversity, equity, and inclusion that we have um, right now. <laughs> you're nodding. You're nodding. I agree. Um, I agree. Yeah. How do we beneficiaries of the current system realize the system is broken, think about the system. I agree. Well, Jason, um, thank you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for chatting with me. And uh, I always appreciate learning from your perspective. And I don't know if you make my brain hurt, uh, but it's it's good. I always, I always walk away with more than I came in with, and I learn a lot. So thank you. Well, thank you for the brain stretching, Chris. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the Breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners. Subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening and be well until our next breakdown.